Good morning. It's good to see you today. So last week, uh, we focused on five words in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And um, to take something that I think most of us, if you've grown up in church or just spent any time in church, like this is a really familiar psalm, this is a kid's psalm, um, and then we just take these first five words and ask, what's this teach us about God? And the, the depth of truth that you all unpacked last week and just the breadth of truth, um, it was really encouraging to me and I enjoyed it. This week, I want us to go, in a sense, in the complete other direction. Like last week was, people may say, hey, this is really, really simple. And then we ask, what's this teach about God? And it opens up this whole world of meaning to us. This week, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. And on first glance, you may read this and be like, this is really complicated. Like it's one of those chapters that may sound confusing up front. There's all these details that you feel like I can get lost in the middle of all this stuff. And I think this is almost the other side of when we come to the Bible in the right way and we say, what does this teach us about God? Like that's the main focus, the main question, that that's the foundation of everything else that's going to be built. It's the key in the sense that unlocks the door of when you see this truth in light of who God is, then he starts to speak to you and you see what it means. So Psalm 23, it was like, well, this is really simple. And then we ask, what's this teach about God? And there's all this stuff that he unlocks. Hebrews 7, you may think, I don't understand all these details. It's okay. What's this teach about God? All right, let's start there and just see what comes out. And, and as always, you're going to go first. Um, so I'm going to pray for us and ask God to teach us by his spirit. Ask that he would open our eyes to see the things that he wants us to see right now about him. And then if that's who he is, what it means for us. And I'd like for you all to take the time that we always do. And then I do have something specific in mind out of this chapter that just seemed really relevant to where we are right now as a church. And so, you know, after, I don't know, 20 or 25 minutes, I'll, I'll share that with you and we'll wrap up that way today. But that's where we're headed. And so if you'll pray with me right now, I'm going to read this out loud with you asking, what does this teach us about God? Father, Son, and Spirit. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for the Bible that you have spoken and revealed yourself and made yourself known in a way that we can understand who you are. And we ask that you will do that right now, Father, that your Spirit will teach on a spiritual level, that he will soften our hearts and open our eyes to see you and love you and to know the things that, that you are teaching us about yourself today. And I pray that you will be at work in your power and your grace, shaping our hearts and shaping our lives and shaping your church into who you want us to be. And Father, we need you to do that because you're the only one who can. I confess that I cannot do that, that we cannot do that, that there's nothing that any of us are going to say in these next few minutes that apart from you will produce any type of spiritual fruit or spiritual results in our lives, that you're the only one who can, and we come dependent on you, we come trusting you, believing that you do this work and that you are going to do it during this time because you've promised to do it in Jesus. And so we come in Jesus' name asking you to do what you've promised to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And then you can pick out the parts that are jumping out to you. But I just feel like it, 
it's one of those, if you break it up, you're already stuck in the middle. And we're stuck in the middle of Hebrews anyway, but I'll catch us up on that if we need to. So Hebrews 7, what's this teach us about God? For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one's ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever.
I know all that was super clear, right? What's that teach us about God? What stands out to you? The things that are clear. One other quick, while you're thinking about your first answers here, one other quick Bible study note that's really, really helpful to me. Like the biggest one, most helpful one, is to ask, what's this teach about God? Like that's always the starting place. But the other piece, and they're really closely connected, is that anytime you get into something where it's like, I don't know if I understand all that, like there's some kind of dark, shadowy parts that are not clear, they're not well lit, and then you've got other parts that are clear and are well lit, don't let the parts that you're unsure about cast a shadow on the parts you are sure about. Instead, start with the stuff you're sure about and let it shine light on the parts you're not sure about. Does that make sense? And a lot of times we're really bad about, like, I understand 10 things here, and there's this one thing I don't understand, and I focus so much on it that I start to doubt the things that are clear. You see what I mean? Like we, we let the one uncertainty cast a shadow on the things that are certain. And it may be that God's not ready to open this piece up to you yet. You may not need to hear it yet. You may not be ready for it. He may have a reason for holding it off for you. But this stuff that he's making clear, he wants you to understand clearly right now. And if you start there, sometimes those are the pieces that shine light on the rest of it. That's really helpful to me because I'm, I'm really bad about... Like there's all this stuff I understand clearly, and instead of listening to that and going and doing that, like believing it and living out and living in the truth of that, I'll focus on this thing I don't understand. It's like I'm paralyzed until I feel like, oh, I've got that. I know what that means now. Now we can. You're never going to get it all, right? You are never going to get it all in this life. Not your, your finite mind trying to grasp infinite truth about an infinite God. There's always going to be pieces that he's still revealing, mysteries that he's opening up to you and teaching you more and more. Now, what he reveals will always be consistent with what he's already shown you because he's consistent. It's who he is. But this idea of I'm going to wait till I've got it all, you're going to wait till you die then. He has things for you right now, right now. And when he speaks by his spirit right now, it's what you need right now. It's, it's manna for today, daily bread for today. And he'll give you today what he wants you to have today. And so always start there. And so Hebrews 7, what's this teach us about God? Father, Son, Spirit, his nature, his character, how he works, how he's worked in history, how he interacts with his people, just who he is. Um, what stands out to you? The, the clear pieces that, that stand out to you. And maybe the whole thing's clear to you. Like, I, I just fuck when I read this chapter, I got to really slow down to make sure it's clear for me. What do you got? It has been and always will be about Jesus. Yeah, and I got it. I'm so tempted to park here the rest of the morning. Like you've already done it to me. <laughs> but so this story here about Melchizedek and Abraham, you know, that's about 2000 BC. So 2000 years before Jesus. And, and you know, most of us, like if you know the Bible story at all, you know Abraham. If you don't, it's perfectly okay. But Abraham's the guy that God picks and says, I'm going to start a nation with your family. And they're going to be my people. I'm going to use this nation in a special way to reveal to the whole world who I am. But when he picks Abraham to start a nation, Abraham has no land and no children. Like the two things that, you know, you need land and you need people to have a nation. And so God picks somebody who has absolutely nothing at all that he needs. And that's the point because God's saying, I am going to make you into a nation. I don't need you to come and give me land and give me people and make a nation for me. I'm going to do it for you. And so he picks a guy with no land, no, no children. 
and they're an infertile couple, Abraham and Sarah, haven't been to have children their whole life, and finally, when Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90, they have a child. So that, that's Abraham's story, and we're fairly familiar with Abraham, Sarah, Isaac. Melchizedek only shows up this one time, really early. Abraham's story starts in about Genesis 12. It runs all the way through 25. So you've got 13, 14 chapters about Abraham. Melchizedek shows up in Genesis 14, then you never see him again, ever. And he comes out of nowhere. He's this priest, and Abraham has a nephew named Lot, who a bunch of kings got together, went to war, uh, defeated the, the area where Lot was living, carried Lot off as a prisoner. Abraham chases him down with all his men, defeats these kings in battle, rescues his nephew, and comes back with all the spoils of the plunder of the war. And that's when he runs into Melchizedek that we're reading about here, and he offers this offering to this priest of God. You hear that story in Genesis 14, and if you stop there, you're like, okay, great. But what John just told us here, we get to Hebrews 7, and Hebrews like, the author of Hebrews is like, that's all about Jesus. Melchizedek is about Jesus. Melchizedek's pointing forward to Jesus. And the reason why is because in the one other time that the name Melchizedek gets mentioned in the psalm that they reference here, when God says you'll be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, well, all the priests in Israel came from Levi, the tribe of Levi. Let's just go ahead and do this because it'll give us good context for the rest of what we're going to talk about today. So we've got Abraham here, where we started. And then Melchizedek lives at the same time as Abraham. So Melchizedek's a priest. And by the way, the Jewish people don't exist yet, because the, the descendants of Abraham are going to become the Jewish people. And Melchizedek actually lives in Canaan, which is you know the enemies of Israel that get driven out later by them. But we've already got a priest of God who knows God living in Canaan, just that God's revealing himself to people even outside of what he's doing through Abraham. But Abraham eventually has this son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau, who's the oldest and Isaac's favorite, and Jacob, who's the youngest, not Isaac's favorite, and he's a thief and a swindler and a liar. He steals his brother's birthright and, and firstborn blessings. He deceives his father, and God picks this one. <laughs> the younger, the not favorite, the outcast, the reject, the sinner, the thief, the swindler. God picks him, and this promise that he made to Abraham comes through Jacob. Jacob ends up having 12 sons. Not enough room. 11, 12. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. When God builds the nation, this is how it goes. Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Jacob's 12 sons. Some of those sons you may be familiar with, like Joseph. You know, at the end of Genesis, he's the one in Egypt who interprets dreams, ends up second in power to Pharaoh, plans for the famine that's coming, rescues all these people with the food that they store up for seven years. Judah was mentioned. From Judah comes David and all the kings and eventually Jesus, and then Levi. From Levi, you eventually get Moses and Aaron, you know, who Moses leads the people out of Egypt. Aaron's his brother. Aaron becomes the high priest, and all the other priests come from here as well. And so this is what the author was talking about here, that, that out of Levi's descendants come all the priests because of God gave the law to Moses, and that's what the law said was going to happen. So, in order to be a priest, you've got to come through this branch over here, Levi, Aaron, Moses, and that's where the priests come from. Jesus doesn't come from there. He comes from Judah, which is where the kings come from. Nobody else has ever been a king and a priest. 
You can't be both because you can't be a descendant of Judah and Levi. You're one or the other. But Jesus is our great high priest. And so the author of Hebrews, he's already been talking about how Jesus is the one offering the sacrifice of himself before God as the great high priest who can go into the Holy of Holies and in the presence of God. And the big question is, well, how can he do that? He's not a descendant of Levi. Like the law says the priests have to come from Levi. The kings come from Judah. Jesus comes from Judah. I get how he can be king of kings, but how can he be our great high priest? And so all of chapter 7 is his answer, what God's been telling you ever since Genesis 14. Before the law comes, which is you know, like Exodus 20, and 500 years later with Moses, 500 years before the law comes and says that priests have to come from Levi, here's this priest, Melchizedek, and in the Psalms, God offers this prophecy of you'll be priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I'm going to send a priest who will forever be the priest, and he won't be from Levi. He won't be that type of priest. He'll come in the line of Melchizedek. And then this really weird Melchizedek who shows up in Genesis. Everybody else has a genealogy in Genesis. Like here was his dad, and here, was here and here and here, and this is where he comes from. Melchizedek has no genealogy. We have no idea where he comes from. Everybody else is like he lived 942 years and he died. He lived 600 years, and then he had children, and then he lived another 300 years, and altogether he lived 900. Everybody in Genesis gets that, except Melchizedek. And so the author's like, with Melchizedek, we have no idea who his parents were, where he came from. We don't know if he died. Like The way the story is written, it's like he just shows up, he's a priest, and he lives forever as a priest. And he's like, oh, that's a hint to Jesus. Like Even the way this historical book was written is a hint of Jesus, where in a sense, like he comes out of nowhere. Nobody expects this priest to show up and be the priest that he is. And he lives forever as a priest forever. And so this, this whole thing in Genesis 14 that we would read so fast, and just be like, hey, that's just a couple of details. It's about Jesus. And it's, it's deeply about Jesus because it's saying Jesus is prepared in a way that no one else is to be your priest and your king at the same time. That the one who rightly rules over you as king also represents you before God on your behalf. Like he goes for you into the presence of God and he offers himself as this sacrifice that will satisfy God forever on your behalf. Your king is your priest. And then your priest is your king all together. And so yeah, like the whole thing's about Jesus. It has been and always will be about Jesus. And then the other thing that John said, and then I'll back off and let you all start again. That you know, Jesus is a better Melchizedek. Jesus is a better Moses. When you, if you want to read the book of Hebrews, like start to finish, and study it, the, that that thought right there, Jesus is better. That's the theme of the whole book. Jesus is better, and the author just keeps lining stuff up from the Old Testament. And so, it's if you start in chapter one, it's Jesus is better than the prophets. And then it's Jesus is better than the angels. And then it's Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than the Sabbath. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system. Jesus is better than the high priests. Jesus is better than the old covenant. Even here today we saw he's a guarantor of a better covenant. A better hope is introduced. He's a high priest not like these other high priests. And so the whole book is built around, hey, all these things that God gave us so we would start to understand who he is, Jesus shows up and he's the best version of all of them. 
that all of them were pointing forward to him, and all of them were good illustrations of who Jesus was going to be, but none of them were the full thing. When Jesus shows up, you get the real prophet who reveals God perfectly. When Jesus shows up, you get the real priest who represents you perfectly. When Jesus shows up, you get the perfect sacrifice who covers you forever. When Jesus shows up, you get the real temple where the presence of God is among you all the time in him. When Jesus shows up, you get a better leader than Moses. When Jesus shows up, you get a better leader than Joshua. When Jesus shows up, you get better rest than the Sabbath. And on and on and on. So that's the whole book. Just Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And so today, we're in the Jesus is better than these priests section. And so that's, that's where we are. And John just like dove straight into the whole thing right there. And so this saves you a lot of time later. Stuff I don't have to say later that I would have said. So that's how that works today. So what do you got next? Jesus gives us direct access to God. And, you know, there's probably a lot of different ways we could talk through this. One of them is the thought of, in the Old Testament, you've got the tabernacle, you know, which was the traveling tent, and then eventually the permanent temple that's built in Jerusalem. And inside it, in that inner room in the Holy of Holies, there was a special place that God had promised that he would manifest his presence. He, he descended in that cloud of glory, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he was there. And it, it represented for his people like a, a visual reminder of, I am with you, and I'm your God. Like, I'm here among you, in your nation. But it was there, in the Holy of Holies, and nobody could go in. Like, God warned them, like, if you come into my presence, you'll die. But once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could go in and offer a sacrifice before the presence of God, and his presence was above the, the atonement cover or the mercy seat, you know, representing that it was a merciful dwelling, dwelling with his people, that he was gracious to them and, and accepting these sacrifices and forgiving them. But you just got this one person, the high priest, who can go to this one place, the Holy of Holies, once a year. Like, who is limited? Where is limited? When is limited? One person, one place, once a year in the presence of God. And when Jesus dies on the cross, the, the huge veil or curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, that's the, the veil that's torn from top to bottom when you read about it in Matthew when Jesus dies on the cross. You know, symbolizing, first of all, not men tearing it from the bottom to the top and getting access to God, but God tearing it from the top to the bottom, opening up this full access to anyone in Jesus to come into his presence anytime. That what was one place is now everywhere, anywhere you are. What was once a year is now all the time, anytime. And what was one person, just the high priest, is now anyone who will come in Jesus. Anyone, anytime, anywhere can come into the presence of God because of Jesus. Because Jesus is this perfect high priest who's always interceding for us, who has offered the sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath forever and, and turns God's pleasure and approval and acceptance toward us all the time. And that when you are covered in Jesus, you can come into God's presence directly in Jesus and then especially when God sends his spirit because of Jesus and now his spirit comes and lives in us and the place where God dwells isn't a building anymore right it's not a temple it's not a tabernacle it's not a room in the holy of holies it's his people it's you it's me that you and I are the temple 
That the church is the people. The, the building is the people. God is building his people into his church. And so now, it's not even exactly that you have access, that you can come into God's presence whenever you want. It's that God's presence is already with you. Anytime, anywhere. That he has come to be with you and live in you by his spirit because of Jesus. And so Jesus gives us direct, direct access to God anytime, anywhere, for anyone who comes through faith in him. Now the other way to flip it, and this is where John started us today, is this emphasis right here. And Jesus is the one who gives us this access. And this is why if you get into other faith traditions and other denominations, the idea of like, well, if I want this, I need to pray through this saint. You know, if, if I go to St. Paul for this or St. Peter for this, or if I pray to Mary, Mary is his mother and she's really got his ear and he's more likely to listen. Listen, nobody else gives you access to God like this. Nobody else is who Jesus is. The whole point of this chapter is that none of the high priests could do this. They couldn't give you this type of access to God. Only Jesus can. And it's not that the high priests aren't worthy of our respect and honor in a certain way. It's not that all these saints and apostles aren't worthy of respect and honor. It's just they're not Jesus. And nobody else is Jesus. Nobody else is the Son of God. God the Son come down to dwell among us and offer himself as the once for all. That, that, that's the phrase he kept using in Hebrews, the once for all sacrifice. He did this one time forever for all people, once for all. There's no one else that can duplicate it. There's nothing else like it. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the one who gives us direct access to God. So you're not going to find it in any other religion outside of Christianity. You're not going to find it in any other religion outside of faith in Jesus. That's what I mean by real Christianity. And even within Christianity, you're not going to find it through any other person but Jesus alone. Jesus is the one that gives us direct access to God. What else stands out to you in this section? Say it again. I couldn't hear you, but I want to. God uses people for his great plan. I like that one. God uses people for his great plan. And what I really like about the way you said this is that when we say, where we started today, hey, it's, it's always been and always will be about Jesus, Abraham has no idea what God's going to do in Jesus. Like he, just, he gets these hints and these whispers of, hey, God's got this big thing planned for the whole world. But he doesn't know the specific details yet. And this encounter with Melchizedek, they have no idea the significance that God is going to build into that. Like how significant it's going to be for 2,000 years to set the stage for Jesus. God has this great plan. And he's picking an Abraham, and he's picking a Melchizedek, and they're a part of it, and he uses them in it, and they're a significant part of it, but the plan's still way bigger than they are. Started way before them, continues way after them, and God is the one bringing it about. He's the consistent one who's always there, always at work, always bringing it about, and he uses his people. He uses Abraham, and when Abraham dies, the plan doesn't end. It's not, it wasn't just a plan for Abraham's life. Then it's Isaac. And when Isaac dies, the plan doesn't end. And it's Jacob. And when Jacob dies, the plan doesn't end. There's Joseph and Judah and Levi and all the other tribes. And when they die, the plan doesn't end. There's mo and God's always there, always using his people. 
And his people have all kinds of stories and all kinds of reasons why you would think, hey, that's not the person for God's great plan. 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 And God's like, when are you going to realize it's my great plan? (laughs) It doesn't depend on you all. I'm gracious to choose you, and I'm gracious to use you, and I will use you to bring about these great things. And someday people are going to look back and be like, that's how he used them, and that's how he used them. And and do you see how these pieces fit together? And they couldn't see it in the moment, but this is what he was doing. And the great plan is always about Jesus. Always about Jesus. What else stands out to you? God saves completely. When we get down here to the end, this is where after he walks through kind of all the Melchizedek murk and and you have trouble with the details here and there, we get down here to the end and he starts telling us, this is why I'm telling you all this. And I've skipped some of it. But starting 22, Jesus, let's make that a little thicker is the guarantor of a better covenant. There's you know, no one of those betters. Jesus is better than the old covenant. The former priests, like in the old covenant, these priests that come from Levi, there was a whole bunch of them. Why was there a whole bunch of them? It's not a trick question. It's in the verse right here. They kept dying. <laughs> you got a problem. Like if this is the person that represents you before God, like this is the one guy that can go into the one place once a year and offer a sacrifice and the nation's forgiven. When he dies, you're in trouble, right? (laughs) But one of his sons would become priest. But it had to keep happening. The guy that's supposed to represent you before God kept dying. And so you needed somebody new and somebody new. So, So death prevents them. But how's that different from Jesus? He's your priest permanently. Forever, like forever now, you have someone before God the Father who's for you, representing you, on your side, there on behalf of you, interceding for you, speaking good on your behalf forever. Why? Because he continues forever. He lives forever. He defeated death. And this is just like one of the billion important implications of the resurrection that he has conquered death and now he lives forever. And because he lives forever, he can be your priest forever. He can perfectly intercede for you forever. So consequently, as a result of that, so it's not like the guy goes in once a year, here's the sacrifices for this year, next year we have to do the same thing all over again. And then that guy will die and we've got to find somebody else to do it for us. But it's this, this guy gave himself once for all, the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice of infinite value and infinite worth that satisfies God forever, and he lives forever to intercede for you. And so he's able to save, ESV said to the uttermost, some of the other translations say completely, this is where Carol got completely, to save completely those who draw near to God through him. It's got to be through him. There's nowhere else because, you know, the sense, he always lives to make intercession for them. And so here, so many things right here. That when God saves you in Jesus, it's done. It's finished. It's complete. There's nothing for you to add. There's nothing for anybody else. There's nothing you can add because Jesus has done it all. Jesus' blood has covered it all and paid it all and washed it all away. 
And then Jesus' righteousness pleases God to the uttermost, fully, completely. He's completely satisfied with you in Jesus. He completely approves of you in Jesus. That everything God would require of you, Jesus has. And Jesus gives it to you and shares it with you when you draw near to God through faith in Jesus. So God saves completely. He does the whole work. He gives the whole gift. There's nothing for you that you don't come with. And here's God's part and here's my part in the sense of here's what God will do, here's what I'll do. Or here's the peace that God will give and here's what I'll give. That's not how it works. God has everything. And he says his job, his promise is he will give you everything. And your part, you do have a part. Your part is to believe that God gives you everything. That's what faith is. Like, like real faith in Jesus, real faith alone in Jesus alone is coming and saying, I don't have anything that I need. And he has everything. And the one who has everything promises to give it to me, not because of me, not because of something I do, but because of Jesus. And so I give myself up. I stop believing that it's me. I stop believing that I can do any of this. I stop relying on myself or trusting in myself. I stop trying to advance myself and promote myself and prove myself and justify myself. I stop working to try to show that maybe I can be good enough or just a little bit good enough to make it worth God taking a risk on me. I stop all that and I just die to myself and I give myself up and I say, Jesus is my only hope. I'm not my hope. God, God won't love me because I earn his love. God will love me because he loves me. And he's shown it in Jesus. God won't approve of me because I do things that earn his approval. God will approve of me because he's chosen to approve of me in Jesus. And Jesus has perfectly earned his approval. And God gives all that to me and says, that's yours now. And God looks at you and when he sees you, that's how he sees you. And he does it all. And you come and you say, I believe that he does it all. I believe he has to do it all because I can't. And I believe he's willing to. But he makes this gracious promise that this thing that's too good to be true, he'll actually give it to me. God saves completely. What else? One more. right here where it says he has no need like those high priests your translation says unlike those high priests he has no yeah and I like unlike if we I like unlike (laughs) sorry I tickled myself Um, Jesus so here and here's one of the really there's so much here like every sentence we could do a whole week on you know but if you go back to chapter two and I'd love if you read Hebrews this week, it's 13 chapters. You, less than two chapters a day, and you could read it this week and just get this picture of Jesus. I've thought about us doing Hebrews together at some point here, like just start to finish. But if you go to chapter 2, what the author emphasizes is, hey, Jesus came down and put humanity on himself, became a human, joined himself to humanity so that he could be like you, so that he could represent you, so that he could die for you. So there's a sense in which he's like you now. That the God the Son becomes like us, these broken, wretched sinners who are separated from God, so that it's right for him to be a substitute for us, that he can take our place. 
And he can pay our price. And he can identify with us. And he calls us his brothers and sisters and makes us part of his family. So there's a sense in which he's like you. But then you get to chapter 7 and he's like, there's also the sense in which he's unlike anybody else you've ever known. Jesus is unlike anyone you've ever known. And there's nobody like him. And it started here earlier. It's fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Like, here's the way that he's different from us. He's not a sinner, and we are. Like, if you have the category of, are you sinless or a sinner? He's in sinless category. We're in sinner's category. And there's separation, which is then what makes it so mind-boggling and so gracious that he would step out of this category, this category that is his glory and his honor and his praise. He steps out of that into our category. And he says, yeah, I'm sinless, but I'll take your sin on me and I'll become sin for you. It's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that he who knew no sin, he's in the sinless category, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, so that we could trade categories with him. He steps into our category, becomes like us, so that we can step out of that category of sinner into this category of righteous and sinless in him. But nobody else can do that for us. Nobody else can say, hey, I'll step out of my category into yours. Here's why. Everybody else is already in your category. (laughs) Nobody can give you access to the sinless category because they're not there. He's the only one who's there. He's unlike anyone you ever... There's never been a high priest like this. It was the point here that these other high priests, what did they have to do when they went in every single day? Sacrifices daily. Why? First for their own sins. So you got a high priest who's supposed to go in and represent you before God and offer a sacrifice to give, give you God's approval and access to God and all those things, but he can't do that because he doesn't have that with God himself. And so he has to offer a sacrifice for himself first, and now he can offer these sacrifices for you, and he has to do it every single day because you know what? He offers those sacrifices, he walks outside and he sins again. <laughs> or he offers those sacrifices, and while they're still burning on the altar, he kind of puffs up with pride. He's like, I'm the guy that gets to do this. None of them are in here. And he's sinning right there. You don't think that happens in people's minds? Like, ask any of the guys that taught a few months ago for us on that teaching team what it's like when you're walking up these steps and you realize all the sin that's here and all the sin that's here, and you're like, what in the world am I doing standing up here? I can't get up here without knowing how much I shouldn't be up here. And that, that's who you got representing you until Jesus comes along. And he's not like that. He's unlike all of them. So... He doesn't have to do daily sacrifices. If you keep reading in chapter 9 and 10, it talks about how those sacrifices were just bulls and goats. It was the blood of animals. And the value of animals to satisfy God for, is nothing compared to the, the value of the blood of the infinite Son of God. So that he doesn't offer bulls and goats day after day after day for his own sins and the sins of others. He offers himself. Once for all, right? he offers himself instead of bulls and goats. It's better. Once for all instead of every day. Forever you're right with God. He's unlike anyone. No other high priest could do this. No other high priest. Even if a high priest has said, I will go in and sacrifice myself for the people. 
if he had said that. It's just a sinner dying for other sinners. Like he, can't, he can't take your punishment because he's got to pay his own. Jesus is the only one who could ever do this, and there's no one else like him. One more thing you want to say, and then I'll, I'll kind of pull us to a point of application. And this is where I hoped we'd start today. Like the point is to see who Jesus is, because anything else we say in application, it won't matter for your life or mine unless it's because of who Jesus is. So anything else that you see right now? Yeah, like, I mean, you think about if you're a Jew, you know, and I know most of us aren't, and so that's part of the disconnect for us. We're like, so what? Like, so Jesus came from Judah, so what? He's my priest. <laughs> but if you've spent your whole life being trained in the Jewish law, and you know that the priest can only come from Levi, like, to, to be a priest who doesn't come from Levi in the minds of the Jews would be to break God's law. And so the fact that God establishes Melchizedek 500 years before the law, and then he sticks that one little thing, I think it's Psalm 102.3 that got quoted there, but I didn't refresh myself on that, so I may be totally off. Maybe it's 2.3. But it's one of the Psalms which says, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Um, that he puts that in there. It is grace straight to the Jews where he's saying, I want you to be able to see like, in the Old Covenant, in your Bible, who Jesus is. Like he, he's giving them access to Jesus and access to the gospel in like hundreds of years in advance, prepared for the fact that they're going to reject Jesus and say, Jesus can't be this Messiah. And he's like, no, it's always been right here. Let me show you. Genesis 4, you're 14 chapters into the Bible, and I've already got you ready for Jesus. And obviously, you're three chapters in, he's got you ready. In Genesis 3, when he promises this guy's going to come and crush the head of the snake. But I'm saying, like, he, he can point back, but yeah, he can be a priest. As a matter of fact, he can be a priest before Levi was born. He can be a priest before I gave the law. He can be a priest before anybody in, in Abraham's family even existed. Like, it's Abraham and no kids yet. Like, there are no Jews, so there's no Jewish law. It's just Abraham right now. And you do see the wisdom of God, and you see the grace of God. In opening this door within Judaism, where he's going to come back to the Jews and say, hey, just walk through the door that's always been here in your own religion that I gave to you. And you really do see. And so what I was scrolling back up to you when you said it reminded me of. So Melchizedek, the first part of his name here means righteous or righteousness. The second part of his name means king. So when the author says, hey, he's... by." translation of his name, king of righteousness. He's literally saying, if we translated his name into our language, instead of just calling him what he was named, it means king of righteousness. Like, that's his name. I mean, it doesn't get much more obvious than that, right? But then, he's the king of Salem, which becomes Jerusalem later, you know, where David and his sons reign. But this word in Hebrew is the same root as shalom, which is peace. And so king of righteousness and the king of Salem means king of peace. We're two verses in, and he's like, listen, God sent a priest in Genesis 14 who was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Who's that sound like? 
in Hebrew, like in their own language, in their own Bible, he's telling the Jews, I have sent a priest for you who's the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and his name's Jesus. Like, I named Melchizedek what I named him 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago for us, so that you would know this is Jesus. It really is brilliant and wise and gracious and good and kind and thoughtful. And it's exactly what we said last week about God using the Lord as my shepherd, that he's speaking in a way where he wants us to know. He wants to reveal himself to us. Like he, for them, I know it's not for us. We don't speak Hebrew, most of us. Melchizedek is a really weird name to us. But when they hear, they hear king of righteousness. When they hear king of Salem, they hear king of peace. Like when you hear me say the words king of righteousness, what you hear with those is what they hear with Melchizedek. God's not hiding. It's not obscure for them. It's, like, it's almost like he's got a megaphone and he's shouting saying, will you listen to what I'm telling you about Jesus? Will you listen to who Jesus is? I want you to get it. I want you to know. And that's his grace to us as well. So when you see that this is who Jesus is, when you see that there's nobody like Jesus, and it's all about Jesus. And God has done everything you think he's done in Jesus, he's done. And then there's this stuff that you read Hebrews 7, you're like, I didn't even realize he'd done this. <laughs> when you get all of that, there's something I want us to look at today as a church together. And it has to, I'll go back up here to the top first. Here in 7, you see this over and over and over, that Melchizedek shows up and Abraham gives him a tenth. Like he, he captures all those spoils from the kings and he gives a tenth or the word we use sometimes today is a tithe. That's what tithe means, a tenth, 10%. And you know, the general idea, a lot of people say, this is how you should give to the church. You, know, you get $100, $10 goes to God through the church, and you keep, that's what a tithe is. And I want us to talk about that here in a minute, because um, it, it's all over this, but I, I think what this text teaches us may be different than the way a lot of us think about giving in the church. So we go down here again, and it's like, here's proof of how great Melchizedek was. See how great this man was? Abraham. And you know how important Abraham is. Like, he's the patriarch, the father of the whole nation. The father of the nation gives this man a tithe, a tenth. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office. So now, once everybody's descended, and you've got the Levites who are the priests, then everybody else in Israel is supposed to give a tithe to the Levites. Like everybody comes, gives their 10% to the Levites, and that's how you pay for them to be the priest. But the deal is, Levi doesn't exist yet, and you could say that Levi is a descendant of Abraham. When Abraham gives to Melchizedek, all of his descendants give to Melchizedek in Abraham. And he's saying, so everybody else, these, these brothers of Levi, give their 10% to him, but Levi, through Abraham, gave his 10% to Melchizedek. How great must Melchizedek be? That's the point again. That he's a greater type of priest. And, and, but you just keep getting this. He received tithes from Abraham. He blesses Abraham. And you know that the superior is the one who blesses the inferior. So Melchizedek's greater than Abraham. Tithes are received by mortal men, the Levites. But in this case, this guy that got the tithe from Abraham, it, Genesis never tells us that he dies. Like imagine giving a tithe to a priest that lives forever. And so that's what's going on here. But I thought it'd be really helpful to look at the story itself. So this is Genesis 14. Just so you hear it, like, here's what actually the Bible says actually happened. And I want you to listen, because obviously 
with, with that theme there of tithing to the priest, like I want us to talk for a few minutes about giving and, and a biblical basis for giving in the church. And you know where we are financially, where we, we've kept saying, hey, since we've come out of the pandemic, things are really tight. And what our, our monthly budget needs are, a lot of times our monthly giving isn't matching that. Now, just for an update, I haven't given you an update in like two months, and you may be wondering, April was a really good month in terms of if you measure giving by need, um, we didn't have to draw on any reserves. What was given in April covered all of our expenses for the whole month, and so it's kind of, it's bought us another month of, of working and planning, and, and listen, all of your elders, uh, Keith is leading the way on this, but all of us, we have been in touch with a lot of people, just looking at, you know, what are options, doors that God may open from um, lenders and banks and investors and real estate companies and other churches and just possibilities of what, what does God want us to do? And just so you know, right now, like not every door is slammed shut, but we also don't feel yet that any door is just swung wide open, like, oh, that's the one. And so we're still praying. We're still asking questions. We're asking you to keep praying. We're still meeting with people. And we're just trying to sort through and discern, hey, God, how, how do you want us to move forward in these next months? What does it look like? Um, and, and one of the things that really helps is as God moves in our hearts and we give generously, that it gives us more time to, to get clear answers and to figure out decisions. So I want you to have that update. You know, another thing that we've done, just so you know, um, is that we, two of our staff are already part-time, like primarily work, uh, other jobs outside uh, like here on campus during the week. We had a third staff person who had the opportunity like come to them to take on another part-time job, and so they've shifted to part-time here as well. And then uh, we've had another one volunteer to do that if, if the need is there, and, and then another one volunteer to take a, a cut and pay. Um, and I just want you to know like, that's, that's where people's hearts are and those are you know, things that we're looking at right now. We, are, we do feel as elders really differently about staff than we do about facilities, just so you know. <laughs> like, these are people. And when somebody comes and is like, hey, I've got this opportunity and it would be a great opportunity for me and I'd like to go part-time, that's great. But that's totally different than just saying, well, you know, things are tight, so here's what we're going to do personnel-wise. If we have to make those decisions, we're going to be really prayerful and they're going to be long conversations. But that's not, listen, that's not the focus because let's just be honest. It, it's the fact that the vast majority of our, our budget monthly right now is for facilities, that, that this is... A, if you do percentages, this is by far our biggest cost. And so we've got to figure out what's the best way to deal with that. Um, and you can pray that stuff gets worked out, you know, renting options over here in this part of the facilities, the insurance stuff with the roof, that that would get worked out, uh, the possibility of investors coming and partnering, like any of those things, just pray that God will show us what it needs to look like. Or, or if he, he's saying, hey, this facility isn't what you need because you don't need the temple. You don't need the here you are, church, I'm going to move you and plant you here in this way, in a more flexible place. Maybe that's what he's going to say. We're not saying he is. We're not saying he's not. I'm telling you, we're still praying. And, and probably if we had our lowest months, which I'm just going to level with you here too, historically, Memorial Day till school starts back <laughs> is the lowest months of the year for giving in the church. Everybody's on vacation, all that sort of stuff. If we had our lowest months, we probably still have three to four months of reserves even to cover those. I'm praying we don't have our lowest months these next few months. But all that's to say, when we talk about giving and we talk about finances, it's not the main thing. And I, I always feel this little part of me, it's like I don't want people to think that this is what we're concerned about. We want to make disciples. 
That's what we're concerned about. But also, it's something that's clearly in the Bible, and I don't want to avoid it just because some people think, oh, well, that's uncomfortable, or they're going to misinterpret it and think you just want money. Let's be honest about what the Bible says about giving. And so we don't want you to give out of guilt. I don't want you to give sheerly out of need, like, oh, well, we need to give to keep the building. Like, I don't think that's the best motivation either. And I don't want you to give from a place of law where we're like, hey, this is what it's supposed to be. You give 10%. And I'm going to show you why in just a second, why I'm saying those things. Ultimately, where we already are in Hebrews 7, I'll give you just a spoiler right here. I want you to give because of how valuable Jesus is. That you see who Jesus is in Hebrews 7, and you're like, listen, if people gave to Levi, <laughs> how much should my heart want to give to Jesus? If people gave to Melchizedek, how much should my heart want to give to Jesus? How much better is Jesus? How much more valuable is Jesus? How much is Jesus worth? And don't give to a facility. Give to make disciples of Jesus. If you believe that God is using this church to make disciples, then you say, I want to invest in that. If you've got mission partnerships and causes like, like Celia and, and Faith and Miguel that we've introduced you all to in the past year and other mission causes that you know, and you're like, they're making disciples in the name of Jesus. Give to that because it's worth it, because Jesus is worth it. Like to invest in Jesus and his name and his gospel and making disciples. The, the reason we would encourage you to do that is because he's worth more than our money. <laughs> he's better. And if Levi and Melchizedek and these type priests they get a tenth from the people. What's Jesus worth? And you can't give what he's worth. Give everything you've got and he's worth more. And so that's the spoiler, but I want you to see how clear it actually is in the Bible. That it's not God coming and saying, hey, here's a law. I need you to obey it. Or, and it's not him saying, hey, I won't get my work done unless you give and pay for this building. That's not what it looks like. So watch right here in this story and just keep this in mind. 500 years later, God gives Moses the law, okay? So the law does not exist yet in what we're about to read. And watch what happens right here. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Shedeloamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So Abraham takes a tenth of what he's gotten in the battle and tithes to this king, priest, Melchizedek. The king of Sodom, who he's the one that his people have been carried off and defeated, he says, hey, give me my people back, but I'm going to pay you for what you did. 
You keep everything else. This is me paying you for fighting for me. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, like the God who owns all of heaven and earth. It's his possession. I've lifted my hand to him that I won't take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. Do you hear what's going on right here? Abram said, if I take your money, you'll be able to say, you made me rich. And I've made a promise to God that I won't let anybody say that about me because God's already made me a promise that he's going to make me into a great nation. Either God will make me rich or you'll make me rich. And if I let you make me rich, nobody will know that God did it. I believe God's promise so much that I'll give up all the wealth of this king. Do you see, I mean, you see that's what's going on in his heart right here. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. So yeah, we had to eat some food when we were fighting. Fine, we'll take that. And the share of the men who went with me. I'll keep my men. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So that's what Abram does. God shows back up and he says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Yeah, you, you turned down what that king offered. Let me tell you what the king of kings offers. It's going to be so much better than what you just gave up. Now, when you realize that that's 500 years before the law, the first thing that stood out to me is that this idea of tithing. Let me erase that. Try it again. Tithing comes way before the law. Right? Abraham, say it another way, doesn't give because of the law. Right? He gives, he tithes, he gives 10%. But it can't be because of the law because there is no law yet saying give 10%. So why does he give? Like just in the flow of this story, why does he give? What are some, throw out the words, and they're, they're going to be right. Don't be bashful. His people get carried off. He goes to get them back. He gets them back. God protects him and his family, gives him this victory. Abraham tithes out of that. What's going on in his heart? Gratitude, thankfulness, appreciation, celebration, worship, praise. He's saying, thank you, God, for what you did. Let me acknowledge it. Here, here. Like, I know this came from you. So I give 10% back to your priest because I know that you gave me all of it. Right? So Abraham doesn't give because of law. He gives because of thankfulness. And if you like the word gratitude better, gratitude. He gives because of worship. Right? He's praising God for what's done. And then I would add this, he gives because of trust. Like what you see is he doesn't just give 10%. He doesn't keep any of the 90 either. Now he tells that king, no. Yeah, I gave the 10% to the priest to acknowledge this came from God. But I don't, want the, I don't want the rest of your stuff either. Why? Because God already made me a promise and I believe him. I trust him. I trust that God will give me what I need. I trust that God has made this promise. I trust that God will keep his promise so I don't have to go grabbing stuff that's not mine that isn't what God's given me. And so his giving is an expression of faith. Now, just to see this same thing, two generations later, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, will get the exact same thing with Jacob. So you're still 
you know, 450 years before the law now. Jacob has lied, steal, stolen, cheated, like done everything wrong that you could do to your family till his brother's trying to kill him. And he's on the run, like trying to save his own life, get away from his brother. And this is when God shows up to people. <laughs> this is when God meets with people. And watch this story right here. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar, pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And so there you see again this vow of a tithe when there is no law. There's nothing requiring him to do this. And what stood out to me here also is that it's in response to a promise that God makes to him. It's not that Jacob gives to God and somehow buys God's blessing. It's not Jacob saying, hey, I'll give you this. Now give me, God shows up first. God shows up before Jacob makes his vow. God makes a promise. God offers a blessing. And it's the same promise. What he's saying here was, hey, that promise I made to Abraham, I'm keeping it through you. You're the one. I know that you lied to your dad. I know that you stole from your brother. I know that you're on the run. I know that you're a coward. I know all that. And I'm going to keep it through you. And so he blesses him first. And that, that, that blessing, that grace from God, starts, starts to melt Jacob's heart. And this guy who has lied and cheated and stole to get whatever he could his whole life suddenly says, if this comes from God, like you give it to me. I'll acknowledge that it comes from you by giving a tenth back to you. So that's the heart of tithing that we see. Jacob doesn't buy God's blessing. God comes before Jacob gives. And then that all that you give me there that I circled at the end, talking to God, all that you give me, I'll give a full tenth to you. I think this is one other thing that when we give, when we tithe, we're acknowledging, acknowledges God's ownership. Like we're saying, all this is yours. Anything I have, you've given to me. And if I keep giving a portion back to you, it reminds me that it's all yours. That none of it's mine. It keeps me from falling. Like it's not, hey, I've got mine, and I've got to give you part of what's mine. That doesn't exist. You have everything. You give me everything I have. It's all from you. It's all yours. 
And so I give a portion back to you as a reminder that is really yours and not mine. And this is where the piece of trust comes in again. God's made this promise. And Jacob's saying, look, if God keeps this promise and blesses me in this way, when I give him a tenth, it's because I know he's going to take care of me. I don't have to hoard everything. I don't have to keep all of it because this is the God who gave me everything I already have. I can trust that he's going to keep giving me what I need in the future. That's where the trust comes in again of, so yeah, God, you gave me this and it's enough for right now. I don't know what's coming in the future. So there's this temptation that I'm just going to keep as much as I can so that I'll be ready for the future. So either I can trust my money to keep me ready for the future or I can say, no, I trust you. And one of the ways I trust you is that I don't have to hoard everything now because I believe you'll give what I need in the future. And so what I want you to see just over and over and over here is that the biblical basis for giving in general, tithing specifically, giving, is not the law. Like there, is not, there was not at this point for Abraham or Jacob some rule saying this is what you have to give, give that way. And I don't believe that there really is for us today either. Because the new covenant isn't a covenant of external laws trying to control our behavior from the outside. The new covenant is an internal covenant in our heart where God gives us not new laws but a new heart. Not new rules but a new spirit. A spirit who comes and lives in us and teaches our heart to value Jesus the way we should and to love Jesus the way we should. And so we would say that giving, you don't give because of the law, you give because of your heart. And that's why the Bible talks about money at all. When we say, hey, this isn't a big deal. This isn't the thing that matters most. It's not a big deal. It's not the thing that matters most. You know the thing about you that matters most to Jesus? Your heart. And what he says is, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Like the reason he talks about money, and he does talk about money a lot in the Gospels if you read it. The reason he talks about money is not because money's important, but because your heart's important. And he's like, hey, your money will show me where your heart is. You can say whatever you want. You can say this is important to you. You can say you value this. Your money will tell me whether or not you really mean it. And Jesus said, I don't want your money. I want your heart. Now, when I have your heart, you'll gladly give your money to make him known. You'll gladly give your money. And you'll find that it's, like for Abraham, it's a rejoicing thing, right? It's not a resentful thing. Like, well, I've got to give God 10% because that's what he told me to do. That, that dynamic doesn't exist. He hasn't been told to do that. He's glad to do it. He, he offers it up. Nobody comes and asks for it. Nobody tells him to do it. He just, I want to do this because I know how God's taken care of me. I know how God's provided for me. I know how good and gracious God is. And I know that God's going to keep taking care of me. I'm thankful for what he's already done. I'm trusting what he's going to do. And that changes how I give. And so the, that, the balance of saying, hey, this is, this is a huge deal for our hearts. And so it's important for us to talk about it, and it's important for us to see it in the Bible. Like, I want to talk about it in that way, but also just how easy it is for us to misinterpret and hear it through the framework that probably a lot of us have heard a lot in our lives, where it is just an external law or external rule, and a lot of times it is kind of guilt-driven and beats you up, and we need this, and we need that, and, and do this, and we can do this, and if you'll give this way, God will accomplish this. I just, I pray that you don't hear that at all this morning. Listen, God is the king of kings. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. <laughs> right? It's not for his sake. It's really ultimately for our sake. He's saying something good will happen in your heart when you see me this way, when you value me this way. 
Something good will happen for all eternity when you take temporary stuff that's not going to last, that you're going to lose the moment you die, and you invest it. You store up treasures in heaven. It will bless you forever. It will matter forever. This is God being gracious to you and me again. When he's like, I'll take this temporary, trivial, worldly thing, and I'll let you convert it into something eternal and spiritual that matters forever. And so as we move forward, um, you know, when, as the elders, when we keep giving you updates, when we say, hey, this is where we are financially, it's a reality of, of being a church that gathers an ability, that has paid staff, that does ministry, that costs money. Like, it's a reality that finances matter. And the way that we function is the generosity of the people who are part of the church. That, that's just the reality of it. But I don't ever want you to think we're saying, hey, here's the need. You've got to give to that to make this happen. That's not what we're saying. I pray what you will hear is, here's Jesus. And he's worth it. <laughs> he's the best thing you will ever have. And the best thing that you will ever do in your whole life with your money is to invest in his work, to make his name known, to make disciples, whether that's right here or anywhere else in the whole world. In my mind, there's no competition for us of where God leads you to give because it's about valuing Jesus, not about valuing this building, this property, or even Friendship Community Church. Like, I hope you love your church. When Keith's saying that we need to be in community, he's right. And this local body is our place to be connected to each other in community. Like, I hope there are good things for you that, that this time of us gathering and studying the Word has spiritual benefit and spiritual fruit for you. I do. But ultimately, the way that it will be spiritually beneficial and spiritually fruitful is if you are seeing Jesus more and loving Jesus more and valuing Jesus more. And that's stirring something in your heart where you're like, Jesus is worth it. This is why. This is why. Not because I have to. It's not a have to. It's not a law. It's because I want to. Because he's worth it. And not because there's a need. Like Abraham and Jacob, neither one are giving out of a like. It's not like Melchizedek needs this. It's not like God needs this. They're, they're not giving out of need. They're giving out of faith in abundance. Like they're saying, God's already given, so I can give. God's going to take care of me in the future, so I can give and not hoard. Like, I want you to give out of a place of abundance, the abundance of grace and the abundance of faith in what God's doing. A freedom from fear, a freedom from insecurity, a freedom from hoarding, a freedom from greed, a freedom from self. Freedom to love Jesus and trust Jesus and value Jesus. And I felt like because of our dynamic, that we've, we've talked about finances a lot for the past five months, you know, just with these financial updates, and as we were talking in a staff meeting, I was just, it dawned on me and I was concerned. Like, have we done that without giving a real clear biblical context for here's why you would give? So that, that was my goal today, to come to Hebrews 7, but do you see how great Jesus is? <laughs> do you see how great Jesus is? And then one of the clear, like on the surface applications was these priests in the Old Testament, people gave. Like, they gave to Melchizedek, they gave to Levi. Jesus is better. If they gave to them, what's... And so one of the ways for my heart, what we've tried to do this in our family, just like really honest, practical application is if Melchizedek got a tenth and Levi got a tenth, like I just, I want Jesus to get more. And so if you're asking like, well, so are you saying there's a tithe or not? I'm saying there's not. But I'm saying it's because it's too low. <laughs> 
<laughs> Jesus is just worth more. So what we do is just off the top, before taxes, before anything, we give 10% straight to the church as a starting place. And then we've got some missionaries that we've partnered with, and we give additionally to them every month. And then if God gives anything additional to our family, like just unexpected stuff somehow, we give another 10% of that to the church and another 10% to missions. And we do 20% off that just saying, hey, this was out of nowhere. We didn't think it was coming. And then we usually try to take the rest and say, will you turn this into something more and let us give off that. And that's because I don't want to stand up here and talk about this and you'd be like, does he do that? What's that look like? I'm not saying that's exactly how it should play out for your family, but for us, it does feel really important to say, Jesus is worth more than Melchizedek. Jesus is worth more than Levi. And if people's hearts could be moved to give that way then, what's it look like now that the Spirit lives in us and we know the full story of who Jesus actually is and we know what God has given us with this King of righteousness and this King of peace? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And, and so one of the ways that I pray sometimes, like we had a missionary come meet with us a couple of years ago. I was like, God, will you give us something extra that I'll just know is supposed to go here? And, and that one wasn't 10% or 20 it was going to be 100% of whatever it was. Well, I had done my taxes, like my version of trying to do my taxes, and, uh, and I thought we were going to get a refund. But I've got a friend who's a CPA, and he's like, here, I'll just put everything in my system, and I'll just see if it spits out the same thing you've got. And so we sat down together, and I just gave him, he put it all in. Well, there's some line that I missed I didn't know anything about. We got $731 extra that I didn't think we were getting. I was like, well, I know where that's supposed to go. <laughs> and so I was able, it, it was Celia um, when she was getting ready to leave, and I was able to text her and be like, listen, this is the story. We prayed about this like Monday night. On Tuesday, we got this. We know that's yours. And, I mean, it we weren't, I didn't think we were getting that. It wasn't ours anyway. You know what I mean? Like it was clearly God's and we asked him to give us something to give to her. And so we're like, all that's hers. And so the, the thought process here is just what Jesus is worth. Do you trust? Do you trust what God's going to do? Do you trust that God can take care of you? Do you trust that he has all the resources in the whole world and he can distribute it however he wants? And then are you starting to see the ways he's already been faithful and are you thankful for that? I know I've said a lot here at the end, but it just it feels really relevant to where we are right now as a church. I head out Wednesday with Darren Foster to go to Peru, so Eric's going to preach for us next Sunday morning. If you want to be praying for him this week, praying as he comes to teach, um, and then praying about what we talked about today, just that God will show us how all this fits into where he's leading us and who we're supposed to be as a church. I'm going to pray that for us right now. We're going to sing a couple songs of worship together, and we will wrap up for the morning. But will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word. I pray this morning, Father, that you open our eyes to see Jesus more, to see that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the high priest. Jesus is better than the old covenant. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Jesus is better than our money. Jesus is better than our plans. Jesus is better than anything that we would do for ourselves. And I pray that as we see Jesus that way, that you will keep working in our hearts to love Jesus for who he is, to value him for who he is, to see how worthy he is, that he is worth it all. And just that you will lead us as a church and you will show us what that looks like and what type of expression it should have in our lives and in this church and in this next season of our life as a church what you want that to mean for us as you use us for your great plan. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.